Hi, I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. And I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. This is, by the way, our second book club interview. If you missed the first, you can check it out online at our website, www.hoover.org. I think it's also on YouTube. Uh, it was a talk uh, with the one and only Victor Davis Hanson about his latest book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. You definitely want to check that out if you're a VDH fan. Now, the great thing I find about life here at the Hoover Institution is that in a time when supply chains are decidedly broken, I never run out of brilliant minds with whom to connect fellows who can reflect on their intriguing intellectual pursuits and explain them in ways that, frankly, a layman like me can easily understand. Today being no exception, our guest being Herb Lynn. Herb is the Hoover Institution's Hank J. Holland Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security. He's also a Senior Research Scholar for Cyber Policy and Security at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, like the Hoover Institution. It's located on the campus of Stanford University. Herb, thanks for stopping by today. Thanks for having me. So um, a lot to know about Herb Lynn, cybersecurity maven, swing dancer, uh, struggling magician. It sounds like you do it all, my friend. I'm reminded of the old joke about Fred Astaire, Herb. Maybe you know the story. He uh, does a screen test for Hollywood. The Hollywood guy doing the test comes back and reports, quote, can't act, can, can't sing, can dance a little. <laughs> no. I'm not sure you're Fred Astaire, but I know you could dance a little bit. No, thanks for coming on. And yeah, congratulations on the book, Herb. Uh, it was a great read. And uh, I will say it's the kind of book that students love because, to be honest with you, it's easy to get through. And I don't mean that as an insult to you. This is a very complicated topic. It'd be very easy to write a couple thousand pages and just absolutely lose people. But you did a very nice job. Seven chapters, I think, Herb, 146 pages and really did a nice job explaining things. Um, explain the genesis of writing this. Was this just natural extension of work you're doing, or did you have a, uh, you know, a, a, a light bulb moment where you decided to do the book? How, how did you come about writing this? Uh, the real story on it is that I was actually uh, scheduled to write a book on a completely different topic, and I procrastinated uh, at least part by writing a book by, by writing this book. But the the this book uh, seriously came about because I was asked to give a talk. Uh, right. at, uh, at an institution uh, where uh, on the subject of the site the impact of cyber technology on uh, uh, the nuclear on nuclear deterrence mm -hmm. uh, and this was a, a place that was uh, intended to train upcoming new scholars uh, to understand nuclear weapons and and the like and right. so I knew the, the the organizer there and you know he knew me and he said why don't you come to give this talk and I gave the talk, and as I usually do, I, I, I record the talks that I give. Um, and it turned after afterwards, I realized that nobody had ever put all this stuff together uh, mm -hmm. before in one place. Mostly people, when they talk about cyber and, and nuclear stuff, they talk about threats to command and control. And that's right. certainly a big deal. And that's certainly a big part of my book, but it's not the only threat. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are, there are a lot of other aspects uh, to it. Uh, so what I wanted to do was to cover the whole business systematically. Right. Uh, 
and and that's what I did, and, and that's the that's the genesis of this book. So the notion of uh, outdated technology uh, with regard to missiles and silos uh, surprises me, Herb. Uh, not that you know outdated technology is a shocker. If you live in California, for example, we have an entity called the Economic Development uh, Department. Herb, it's in charge of the state of California, handing out unemployment checks. Uh, it runs on COBOL programming language. Uh, this is the equivalent of you and I having this conversation, not over modern laptops, but, you know, Tandy trash 80s back in the day. Um, but you're suggesting in your book that our, you know, our missile systems are very much the same, that we're running, you know, on yesterday's technology. And I'm just, I'm just shocked her with all the bright minds in government and obviously the, you know, the rather important nature of nuclear weapons. How is this so? Well, one of the uh, major, well, so you're, you're, you're absolutely correct that uh, it is true that our uh, that the command and control system and, and, and so on uh, was last designed uh, and and upgraded uh, in, uh, in about 1985, late 80s or so. Uh, right. And we're still running the legacy uh, of that. That doesn't mean individual co- components haven't been modernized, but that right. it's basically the same architecture that we had uh, mm-hmm. back then. And so the interesting question is uh, why? Why is that the case? And is this a is this a good thing or a bad thing? And, and the answer is, is I, I can. It's both good and bad for reasons that I'll, I'll, I'll describe in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is this the 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 case? So it's been very very hard to get consensus uh, from the military and others uh, on the need to upgrade uh, upgrade the the cyber portions, the the command and control stuff. Uh, it's been very difficult to, to, to do that uh, because the things that are sexier, the missile platform, the missiles and, and, and the submarines and the bombers and, and so on, uh, tend to get the attention of uh, policymakers much better, much more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is it a good thing or a bad thing that we're running outdated technology? Well, it, it, it's a good thing and, and in, in the sense that um, the threats that are out, the cyber threats that are out there uh, right now are mostly geared toward modern technology. And so they're not particularly geared to, to really old stuff. There's no upside in, in being able to, to destroy that stuff. Uh, and so um, the, the, the fact that we're running an old architecture not connected to the internet and so on, um, that all is a plus for security. Uh, it's a minus for it's a minus for you know for operations and so on for the reasons that you were suggesting that right. uh, it doesn't necessarily do all the things that you want to do and, and, and uh, um, getting replacement parts is really complicated and you know your your comment about COBOL um, I don't think there's any COBOL running in the system but I know there's some COBOL running in some places in the Defense Department and, and you know. It's very hard to find anybody who remembers anything about COBOL. Uh, And so, you know, the the, the people who can do this are are slowly dying out. Yeah, uh, my, so my, point, to... my, yeah, my point being that it all sounds just terribly primitive for her. Look, I went to journalism school back in the early 1980s. I remember we've got computers in front of us. You look at that computer versus today, and it's laughable in terms of just how out of date it is. But are you saying it's just as simple that this is not a priority? I mean, I think of missiles and I think of missile defense primarily. And when I think of cyber, I think of you and I did a podcast, for example, in the spring, and we talked about the colonial pipeline, or maybe you talk about cyber in terms of security, in terms of meddling in elections or maybe you want to go back to when North Korea uh, went after Sony Pictures over the movie they didn't care for. Uh, it just seems that we're not really looking at nuclear weapons right now, but perhaps your book is a wake-up call for that. 
Oh, I hope so. Uh, the, the the cyber, the information technology aspects, the computer computerization of nuclear operations and nuclear weapons and, and so on, which is of course increasing, just like computerization in any in any other aspect of life, uh, come, carries with it benefits and risks. And, right. and I think probably the, the biggest message in, in, in my book is that you want to calibrate that. You want to decide whether or not the benefits that you get are worth the additional risks that you take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see too few people actually doing that. Right. So Herb, government is on the job in this regard. On March the 3rd, the Biden administration did release what it calls the Interim National Security Guidance. Uh, Herb, this is a good time for you to get a drink of water because I'm about to read you something that's going to take a minute to get through. But here it goes. Here's what they said. Quote, we will make cybersecurity a top priority, strengthening our capability, readiness, and resilience in cyberspace. We will elevate cybersecurity as an imperative across the government. We will together uh, to manage and share risk, and we will encourage collaboration between the private sector and the government at all levels in order to build a safe and secure online environment for all Americans. And wait, there's more, Herb. Quote, we will expand our investments in the infrastructure and people we need to effectively defend the nation against malicious cyber activity. We will renew our commitment to international engagement on cyber issues, working alongside our allies and partners to uphold existing and shape new global norms in cyberspace. And we will hold actors accountable for destructive, disruptive, or otherwise destabilizing malicious cyber activity and respond swiftly and proportionally to cyber attacks by imposing substantial costs through cyber and non-cyber means. Woo. Okay, that's a very long-winded generality. So having heard all of that, what really specifically should the Biden administration be looking at right now? Well, everything that you've just described is aspirational. That, that, yeah. and, you know, it's an aspirational document. This is what we right. hope to be able to do. Right. Um, part of my book addresses exactly the, 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 the uh, disconnect between the people at the top, the people who write the strategy, and the mm-hmm. people at the bottom who actually have to implement them. Right. So if you think about cybersecurity, it has a very, the, the, that's the security of your computer system. It has a very interesting function. It's supposed to make it impossible for a bad guy to use your system, and and it's supposed to be completely transparent when it's a good guy using the system. So the job of cybersecurity is to be able to differentiate perfectly between good guys and bad guys and prevent the bad guy from doing bad things, from doing anything on the system, and allow the good guy to do everything that the good guy wants to do. That's the whole point of security. Now, the, the fundamental problem uh, in this is that you can't do it. You can't perfectly distinguish between good guys and bad guys. Right. And so this is always going to be uh, an, an, an issue uh, and you're gonna be making mistakes. Every time you make it easier for the good guy to do something, you're also making it sort of easier for some bad guys to do something. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only the second point is that when you're given a choice, when most people or people are given a choice between something that's convenient versus something that's secure, they right. inevitably choose the convenient stuff. Okay. So how many times have you gone into a building and walked up a stairway and there's a door that says, do not prop open this door and it's propped open with a brick, right? You've seen this a hundred times. Every, right. We've all seen this, okay? And it's not because people want to disregard security in particular. It's that it happens to be a convenient way to get to the bathroom from a conference or something like that. That's why they right. talk with a brick. Um, and it's too much trouble 
to go through all the proper security procedures, you know, maybe have to go all the way down the hall and come back around and, you know, and, and so on. And you really got to go to the bathroom. You, you want to just go cut through there. Okay. So the point is that people always opt for convenience over security. Um, security is supposed to make stuff really inconvenient. Okay. That's its job right. for the bad guys. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, since the system doesn't know, it makes it inconvenient for the good. That means people bypass it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you have at the top all this business about, yes, you want to make cybersecurity a top priority. Then as it filters down, but there are other things you want people to do. It's not just, I know how to make a computer that's perfectly secure. Put a metal box around it, right? right. Don't let anything in, don't let anything out. Perfectly secure. Not very useful, but perfectly secure. Okay. Um, but you want your computers to be able to do something. And so the in, in this context, the, 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 the problem is that Somebody, they, yes, they say security, cybersecurity is a top priority. Absolutely. But there are other top priorities too. And it's that tension between getting, you know, doing stuff and being secure that always gets in the way of this. And people are, are motivated. They, they want to do their jobs. Uh, they will tend to forget about security. And that's the tension that this is, you know, that, that, that the statement makes. Okay, you reference bad actors here, Herb, and uh, it seems to me that a handful of nations tend to come up in this conversation. Uh, Russia comes up in this conversation. China, North Korea, Iran, uh, and there are probably a few others uh, that you could name. I'm very interested in China in this regard. Um, We we have a lot of fellows at Hoover who study China. Uh, We have some who are in the camp that China needs to be negotiated with, some who are in the camp that a Cold War is underway. be, I don't know which camp you're in or not, but let's assume that we see China as essentially this generation's, this century's equivalent of what the Soviets were in the second half of the 20th century, that we're on a collision course with them in terms of just you know global influence. Explain to us our approach to cybersecurity versus how the Chinese government um, has their cybersecurity set up. Because I think I think you know, you've talked about this in the past, just how, how the two countries have different approaches to this. Well, so, okay, so one thing, is that the, the line between the private sector and the government right. uh, in the United States is pretty sharp compared right. to where it is in China. Right. So uh, in China, they have the ability to, do, to impose cybersecurity measures uh, on a much broader scale uh, in, the pri- in their, quote, private sector, whatever that means. Right. Um, and we do. Okay. Uh, now, that has... That has Benefits and costs. I'm not saying that we should be like China, but certainly the ability to promulgate change, you know, certain cybersecurity regulations, changes, in the, and, and so on, uh, yeah. is uh, you know helps their cybersecurity posture. Right. Uh, and and we don't have that ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, Chinese companies are required by law to cooperate with the party. Right. Um, there's no such law in the United States. I mean, you have to go through, if the U.S. wants to influence the, the behavior of a private sector company, you know, it'll go to, you know, the, the, and the private company says no, um, the U.S. can, you know, try to force it, and then the com- private company will go to court, right. and we have an independent judiciary, and sometimes that judiciary rules against the government and says, right. the government, go away, right. um, but that doesn't happen in China. 
So let's talk about the American approach then. Dwight Eisenhower leaving office in 1960, her famously warns the country about what he call it a military industrial complex. Oh. What he was getting at was at an overlap between government and the Pentagon, uh, if you will. But there is a business around the military and, that's, uh, and that involves both industry who do contracting work and also universities that do research. So how does cyber parallel that, Herb, or how does it differ in terms of you have a cybersecurity issue and you have companies in you know, Silicon Valley devoted to technology, universities like Stanford that study. How does the government blend all of that? How does the government? How does the government blend that? And how should the government be balancing this in terms of reaching out to private sector, but also working with academia to, you know, to, to make us a safer, more secure country? Well, I mean, that. That, that is a, the, the global question of, of, of cybersecurity governance in the United yep. States. How, yep. the private sec, how the public sector and private sector can work together to, uh, in, in, to improve our, our, our cybersecurity. Nobody, nobody has a good answer to that. Let, right. me give you an, let me give you an example of where we don't know, we don't know how to proceed here. Right. Let's pretend for a minute that every cybersecurity, that every company uh, invests the correct amount in cybersecurity that's adequate for its business needs. Let's mm-hmm. pretend that that's true. That's not true. They underinvest, but let's pretend it's true for a minute. Right. Now what you have is a bunch of companies that are all investing for cybersecurity up to the level that is adequate for their business needs. So all these businesses are taken care of. Mm-hmm. Okay. However, there are certain businesses among them that are not critical, whose, fu- whose functioning is not just critical to the stockholders, but critical to the nation, to the entire nation. Okay. So for example, uh, you could, an example would be electricity. Okay. Right. Uh, electric power generation is critical to the whole nation. It's not just critical to the stockholders of such and such a utility company. All right. So then you say, if you believe that, because it has this national impact, the cybersecurity posture of these companies has to be higher mm-hmm. because they're critical to the nation, not just critical to someone. Now you have to invest even more money. Question, where does that money come from? Mm-hmm. And there's no good answer to that. Right. The, the, by definition, the company has been spending is enough money for its own business. So the stockholders are happy. Okay? Right. But if they if they spend any more, they're getting extra security that the stockholders don't need. So stockholders are going to be mad. Okay. Does the government come in now and say you have to do the extra? You have to be the you know come in and order them to do it? Well, that's very controversial because now the government is reducing your profits. Okay. Right. Does the government come in and give you uh, additional money to do it? Well, mm-hmm. you could say that, but then but they don't know how much to be giving you because. Uh, you know, you know your own cybersecurity uh, problems better, uh, and, and, and you know you have now. If you're going to ask the government for money, you have every incentive to inflate that. Okay, and so there's this question of who pays for the additional security that the whole country needs, right. and nobody knows the answer to that because it's a political question. Right. Um, China doesn't have this problem. Right. So. Okay, so I noticed you used the words that the nation needs. Um, so here's what I'm curious about, Herb. Um, we can criticize the government till the sun goes down. Uh, we can talk about wasteful spending till the sun goes down. On the flip side, though, when the government is willing to 
uh, expend treasure and also have a readily identifiable target, um, positive things can happen. I'm thinking Operation Warp Speed and coming up with vaccines against COVID. I'm thinking the Manhattan Project and building the atomic bomb. This is an example of taking just a large amount of government money, but also directing it at a, you know, at a goal. So the question would be, if we thought about this in cyber terms, Herb, we could come up with the money. As we see in Washington right now, we're debating trillions of dollars. So I don't think that you know money available is quite the issue. I think the question is, what is the, what is the target? What is the goal? If you had to identify what the challenge is on cybersecurity, what exactly is it? I think you have actually, you, you have put your finger on exactly the key problem. That's exactly the right question to ask. A vaccine or an atomic bomb, you know when you've gotten it. You don't know when you've gotten ahead of cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is much more um, a, uh, a, a game of, it's more like baseball, if you would be there, you know, you get, but You get better security, cybersecurity by increasing batting averages. It's a never-ending battle. You know, a, a, a hitter with a 300 batting average is obviously better than, than with a 200 batting average. We all, we all accept that, okay? But the guy with a 300 batting average is not guaranteed to get on base every time. Right. And, they, and the pitcher, pitcher has to be more careful with him and so on, but he goes through the same kind of, of intellectual exercise that he does when he's hitting, you know, going up against a 200 bat. Right, because a 200 batter can also nail him as well, and so you can get stuff. You can be better at doing cybersecurity, but you'll never win it decisively. You'll never get to a point where there's no battle at all, and that's what sometimes that's what people want. And when I have to worry, I want I, when I get to the point where I don't have to worry, you'll never get to that point, right? Because it's not that's not the nature of the problem. Why is that? Because why is that true? Because there's always a bad guy who has some incentive to want to compromise. Mm-hmm. Always, there's always that guy. Um, and until you can, you know, sort of eliminate all of those people, which you can't, there's always going to be a problem. Okay, so rather than doing this book club, what if I were able to give you 30 good minutes with the President of the United States? You can sit down in the Oval Office with him, say, "Mr. President, here's what needs to be done. Go." But this is going to be this will have to be an elevator pitch because we don't have 30 minutes here. But just what would you tell Joe Biden if you had a chance to talk cybersecurity with him? What does he need to know? What would I, what would I tell the president about this in, in the in the big in, in, in the broad sense, find a way to couple your high level pronouncements with what the, with the align the incentives with those with the people you have control over on the ground. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of people working in cybersecurity uh, on the ground. Um, uh, how do you get those people to, to, to be uh, working towards the goal that you described in, in this very aspirational policy document that you, that, that you, you just read to me? Right. Um, I mean, that's probably the most important thing that, that, that you can do to make their incentives align. Uh, because that way that people will actually do things. They'll, they'll do the right thing. Um, the problem right now is that people are disincentivized from doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's, that, that's the essence of the speech that I would give. 
Would you tell him, I keep dating myself, I mentioned Eisenhower, and I'm going to go back to Kennedy, who famously ran in 1960 on the idea of a missile gap that maybe didn't exist at the time, but he had the American people believe that the Russians were, you know, you know, eating our lunch when it came to missile technology. Would you tell him there's a technology gap where it comes to cyber? In other words, are other nations ahead of us on this? Well, their offense is better than our defense. That's certainly true. Then again, okay. our offense is better than their defense. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's also true. Well, that's that's not something that we all that, that we very much talk about. Nevertheless, right. you know the idea that of, of getting uh, more and more, uh, get, getting better and better uh, at cybersecurity is a you know is is, is a, that, that that's that, that's an that's a worthy goal. But you'll never get to it. Right. Now, why? So this is this is this, this is and what I'm about to say here is actually a uh, an important part of my book as well. Mm-hmm. Operationally, it turns out that we have an unlimited appetite for computers that do more and more stuff for us. Our computer now is better than our computer was 10 years ago. Uh, It does more, uh, it's easier to use, it's faster, it it has more functions, Uh, Mm -hmm. it it does a whole lot more. But also it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot more more complex than it was 10 years ago. Software is more complicated. Hardware is more complicated. The problem here is that as you make something more complicated, more complex, you make it less secure. Mm-hmm. Every computer security person will tell you that the enemy of security is complexity. More complex things have more ways to screw up on you. Right. right. So more things to go wrong, more places for the attacker to get in. And the technical term is, is a larger attack surface. Uh, more play, more vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. So given that we always demand more functionality, we're always wanting more, we are implicitly asking for systems that give us that functionality but are also more insecure. And the problem is people do not weigh the benefits of or more functionality against the downside risk and cost of mm-hmm. less security. Let me give you an example of this. I'm right now shopping for a new refrigerator. I don't want one with Wi-Fi connectivity. I don't need it. But you know something? It's really hard to get a refrigerator without Wi-Fi. Now, I can do that if I want a low-end machine and and, and so on. But, you know, but in 10 years, I guarantee you, I won't be able to get a a refrigerator unless it's used without Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I don't want Wi-Fi. Okay, you know you do. You know you can now buy an electric toothbrush with with, with Bluetooth connectivity. You can connect your electric toothbrush to the internet. Okay, um, right. why do I want to do that? Right. So there, there there are these questions about does what you're buying with the new functionality make sense? Yes. And people aren't willing to to, to ask that question. Why? You know, if you if you unpack what I just said, it sounds like I'm anti-innovation. Well, guess what? In right. some cases, I am anti-innovation. I'm mm-hmm. anti-innovation that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't buy you a significantly improved product that you can that actually has benefits that outweigh the costs. Right. And I, my, and this happens in the military too. Mm-hmm. They want the system to do all sorts of things. The singing and dancing, you know, systems 
um, that are complicated and that they give you lots of functionality and that the, you know, everybody really wants to use and, and, and so on, it's going to be a lot more complicated than be less, less secure. Right. Everything that we've heard about nuclear command and control and, and, and these new systems that are coming online, it mm-hmm. says we want more functionality. And nobody is taking a look at the downside risk of getting that. That's my problem. Right. So, Herb, I understand when a nation wants to use cyber warfare, to call it, uh, for lack of a better term, but cyber warfare, if they want to they want to use cyber ability to muck in our elections, um, right. you know, to hack machines and score right. up vote counts. They're not choosing who the next president will be necessarily. They just want to just confuse our democratic process and just, you know, you know, seed, you know, you know sow the seeds of confusion and chaos in this country. Uh, Colonial Pipeline, another good example of this, I think. Uh, you shut down that pipeline, I think it was for five days it was shut down. Down, if I'm not mistaken, Herb, right. uh, you're not shutting down the American economy, but you sure as heck are disrupting it. And again, just causing a lot of confusion and chaos, if you will. But explain to me the goal of shutting de- of going after nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, the obvious one is that you want to shut down our nuclear capabilities so you can launch nuclear weapons against us. We can't reply in kind. Or, or am I missing some sort of James Bond aspect here where you could actually hack into a nuclear weapon and launch it and send it on your direction? I mean, I'm trying to get at what is the end game of actually trying to trying to go after our nuclear system? There are two, uh, let, let me distinguish between two kinds of cyber risk here. Mm-hmm. One kind of cyber risk that you face is from the Russians, for example. Right. Uh, and they have an interest in doing a cyber attack on our nuclear weapons to prevent us from using ours. Yes. You can see, you can see why that would be in the Russian interest. Right. No Russian is going to try to trick us into launching nuclear weapons because they're going to be right. aimed at the Russians. Okay? Right. And they, they don't want to do that. So but a terrorist group might want to do that, but the Russians don't want us to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? Their goal is to attack us uh, to, in, in a way that, that, that shuts it down. So that's, that's the usual threat model. That's mm-hmm. mostly what people worry about when they say, I have a threat to my uh, nuclear weapons, there's cyber risk and so on. Russians might get in, they shut them down. Okay. And we can see why that's bad, okay? Because right. there are weapon systems that we rely on to deter the Russians and, and so on. If we don't have that, you know, the Russians can do, do stuff and we can't respond. Okay, so right. that's one part. There's another part of it, which is less, which is less often talked about which is that cyber comes with inherent ambiguities. And what that might mean is that if, if we do something to the Russians or the Russians do something to us, they right. mean one thing and we misinterpret what they mean, we could very easily get into uh, some sort of scenario that involves escalation to nuclear war. Here's right. the example that I mean. Let's pretend, I'm gonna, just, just so we understand the, you, um, construct an example where the U.S. is going after cyber stuff on the other side. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend that uh, the, the, the Russians have announced an exercise, a nuclear weapons exercise. Right. Okay. A nuclear weapons exercise, by definition, looks a lot like preparations for a nuclear war. Right. That they're going to attack. So we want to know, is this really an exercise, like they say, or is this going to be a clandestine operation for the largest sneak attack? Right. So what do we do? We go into there, we try to penetrate their nuclear command and control system and to look around because we want to see what they're really saying. Mm-hmm. We want to know what they're really up to. Right. So we go into it and we look around and, you know, so we're doing it for, you know, entirely understandable reasons, right? right. We're telling, you know, we want to make sure that we don't overreact, you know, and, and so on. Let's say the Russians look at this and they're watching us do this. 
they see us now in their nuclear command and control system. Do you think right. they're going to be thinking of us as benign? No. Right. They're going to worry that we are now in their systems and we're going to do something really bad to them. Mm-hmm. So we know we're not going to do anything bad to them. We're just trying to figure out what's going on. But to expect them to believe that we don't, to, to, to believe us, that we're not trying to do anything bad, that's beyond the realm of possibility, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to think that, you know, we're trying to, we're in there for, for dastardly reasons, and maybe we're preparing to launch an attack. Right. So now, now this nuclear exercise turns into something that's a lot more real for them. Mm-hmm. And you can see how that might start to, to escalate. This would have been a component missing during the Cuban Missile Crisis, correct? Right. That's the sort of th- that. That's the sort of thing that you that, that you could worry about. But the, the reason that this is a cyber issue is that an intrusion into your system could be espionage or could be an attack, and you have no way of knowing the difference. I know the difference because I'm the one doing it. But you don't. You're the victim, and you have no way of knowing. Right. Uh, I'm kind of reminded that I think it's the 1983 movie War Games. I don't know if you've seen it or not with Matthew Broderick. Right, where he uh, is a kid who actually hacks into NORAD, and before you know it, we're looking at, look at missiles being launched because there's, I guess, uh, like there's a virus put in the system or something like that, or just a way to trigger the nuclear attack. But it does get back to almost 40 years ago the idea that computers could inadvertently be used to launch a strike. I, that that is the usual yeah. scenario that people worry about when right. you, know, you, you talk about a layperson and so on. That's the, I'm actually not particularly worried about that. That's what, you know, if, if for that to happen, you have to compromise the entire launch sequence and, and so on. That's why we have people in it. Yes. Uh, it's not as though there's a button on the president's desk, you press it and then this is all. There are people involved in that system all the way down the line. Um, and they, they have to, you know, validate it and authenticate it. And so there are people who are, ex- who are exercising uh, judgments about that. So I'm not worried about, I, I'm, th- that's the least of my worries. Mm-hmm. Um, I wor- you know, a terrorist could be doing that, but the terrorists are much less likely than the Russians to know about how our nuclear command and control system works. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm, I, I'm less worried about that. Okay, so you're an academic and you're concerned about this. Um, are people high up in government concerned? Are lawmakers concerned about this? Do you have their attention? Because I see a lot of distractions out there. I see a struggling economy. I see COVID. I see we're now having big arguments about our culture and schools and so forth. So how do you get this on lawmakers' radar screen? With podcasts like this. I don't have a good answer to that. Um, do I, well, I think I think there is an answer actually, Herb, in that. And let, let's talk about this for a minute. We have only a few minutes left on this. In terms of the structure of the government and how cybersecurity fits into the U.S. government right now, which agency or agencies house it, and how much muscle do those agencies really have? Well, that is an interesting question. One of the the the, the, the organizations with the most knowledge, like the National Security Agency, most right. knowledge about cyber stuff, is an intelligence agency. Of the U.S. government, right. so people in the private sector are not particularly inclined to trust an intelligence agency with cyber because they worry about invasions of privacy and all this other stuff. Then there are other players who have uh, the mission uh, to, you know, work with uh, the, the work with the private sector and so on, but they're not regarded as particularly competent, right. In, 
you know, think, organizations like the Department of Homeland Security and so on. Now, I think in both cases, it's, it's a bad rap. Right. I think that DHS actually is, you know, is, is pretty competent about many things cyber related. Um, and NSA, yeah, you know, the people that I know there are, are, are particularly concerned. Uh, they, they go out of their way to be concerned about privacy and civil liberties and, and, and so on. And, you know, I, I, I have a lot, I personally have, have uh, you know, non-trivial faith that, that they'll execute the, the, their responsibilities um, properly. But by and large, these, the American public does not share these perceptions of mine. Um, and there's a lot of suspicion about, you know, the intelligence agencies, and there's a lot of doubts about the competence of, 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 of DHS. And in that environment, you know, you don't trust somebody and you don't, the other people you don't think are competent, what would you expect to happen? The answer is very little. Right. Uh, so a rather naive question, is there any possibility of international cooperation on cybersecurity, or is this just every country doing what they need to do to protect themselves? Um, that's the one question that, that I, I do address in the book um, mm -hmm. is this question of, you know, is, is there a place where we could cooperate? Right. And, or, or do we just do our own thing to secure? I think there is. And mm -hmm. I, my, my desire there is to, is to consider the following. In, if you are, perish the thought, ever in a war, in a nuclear war, the thing you really, really, really want to be able to do is to have the pre our president stay in touch with their president. Right. Right. How do you turn a war off once it's started? And that means our leaders have to be able to negotiate with each other. They have to be able to talk to each other. Right. And think about doing that in a nuclear environment. That's really a tough problem. Mm -hmm. Because you have nuclear weapons going off here and there. They disrupt communications. You have your fiber optic cables um, being cut on both sides. You have your satellites being attacked. This is a serious move. How are you going to stay in touch with the other guy? Well, Herbert also had not just a nuclear environment, but a Twitter environment, because at the same time in which you're trying to negotiate with a country and try to bring something peaceful, who knows what's on Twitter being spread in terms of crazy that's, rumors. That's, that's also true. That's a different point. That's right. yeah, You're absolutely right about that. Mm -hmm. But just this question of how do you stay in touch with the other guy? Right. That's really hard to do. And I mean, imagine that if you're, you know, maybe the presidents are flying around so that you can't target them. You know, do you want, if you were a president, would you want to be sending out broadcasting on a radio when you're up in the air? Um, you know, or is the other guy might use that to target you? That's, you know, that's pretty dicey. Um, and, and so there are all kinds of interesting problems in, in this that nobody has yet solved. And, and, and I don't see very much attention being paid to it. So I, I actually think that this question of how you stay in touch uh, in the middle of a war uh, is a very important question. And you can't just assume that it's all going to happen at the State Department or something like that. Final question for you, Herb. Let's make it a quick one since we have only a couple minutes left. Um, it seems to me a lot of what the Biden administration is doing is just kind of going along with what the Trump administration did. There's a lot of continuity on cyber, for now at least. Uh, but we'll soon be at the one-year mark of this administration. Do you expect a departure at some point, some, some policy shift from what the Trump administration did? Only on the margins. Not mm -hmm. very, no, not, not on a large scale. No, I don't. Mm -hmm. um, because part of the problem is that 
there are entrenched interests and they don't particularly care whether there's R or D in the, in the White House. Mm-hmm. The private sector does not want to spend more money on cybersecurity than it has to, for example. Mm-hmm. That's true regardless of who's in, who's in office. Okay. Maybe the Democrats are, are, more, are more responsive to a, uh, an idea that you have to impose regulation. And maybe you can say that Republicans are a little bit more allergic to, 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 to regulation. Um, on the other hand, Republicans have supported legislation to make cars safer. Um, you know, so who knows? I mean, there, there, there are some minor differences, uh, but in the large in the large scheme of things, I don't see I don't see any major things changing. Okay, so final question. I do promise this is the final question. A year from now, two years from now, will we be safer in terms of nuclear weapons? Will they be cyber safer? I hope so. <laughs> I would. I, I I'm going to work as hard as I can to do that. That's part of why I wrote the book. Okay, Herb, that's a good place to end it off. Uh, Hey, I enjoyed the conversation. Let's uh, do a podcast soon. Uh, Keep on talking about this. Herb, thanks for joining us today. And more importantly, thanks uh, for all you do for the Hoover Institution. It's much appreciated, my friend. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. I hope to see you again. Thank you. The title of the book again, Cyber Threats and Nuclear Weapons. It is available online, meaning, yes, you can purchase it at Amazon. I hope you get it before Christmas if you're going to gift it. But sounds like a good Christmas gift to me. I think Herb would agree, too. If you want to learn more about Herb Lynn, follow Herb Lynn. Yes, he is on Twitter. Brave man that he is. His Twitter handle is at Herb Lynn Cyber. Let me spell it out for you. Uh, that is H-E-R-B-L-I-N-C-Y-B-E-R at Herb Lynn Cyber. You can also follow Herb through the Hoover Institution and what we call the Daily Report. You go to hoover.org, click on the publications tab, go where it says uh, Daily Report, click on that, hit subscribe. That means that every time Herb writes something, he's going to show up in the Daily Report. So you can follow him there. You can also keep up with him on his, uh, his own little section of the Hoover website as all. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. Thanks again for watching Book Club. We'll be back soon with a new author and a new topic. Till then, take care. Thanks for watching. Thank you.